Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today it's with great pleasure that my guest is Professor Menachem Klein. Professor Klein is a professor in the Department of Political Science at Barilan University, but more importantly, he's the author of a large number of works dedicated to Jerusalem, uh, particularly from a political perspective. But I will also add that Professor Klein has been heavily involved in uh, what now is defunct, but uh, obviously in the 90s and early 2000s, was very active peace process, and he worked extensively on the question of Jerusalem. In 2014, Professor Klein published a milestone book, a work that influenced the work of many, certainly uh, myself included, Lives in Common. Arabs and Jews in Jerusalem, Jaffa, and Hebron. And of course, we're going to talk about some of the contents of this amazing book, uh, with mostly referencing uh, Jerusalem. But first of all, Professor Klein, welcome. Thank you very much. The first question, which is inescapable, is what is your Jerusalem? In other words, what is your connection with the city? I will answer very, very basic. Uh, perhaps um, a daily base uh, answer on my experience in Jerusalem. This is the place where I live in. So I am a citizen of Jerusalem and this is my city. That's it. It's not, for me, it's not a place that I dream of or I feel like, you know, floating over the holy city and uh, walking on the path of the prophets and uh, in the Bible time, Jerusalem or so. 
it is the place where, where I live my everyday life. Of course, it is also a place of, um, full of tension, actually. Uh, it, is, uh, it is a hard place. Uh, it's not for people who suffer from a very weak heart. I think this is an important distinction. There is a Jerusalem of its people living there on a daily basis. And of course, the Jerusalem of the people outside uh, idealizing the seat in different ways, whether for political or religious purposes. And of course, they can coexist, but also they can clash against each other. The first yeah. question of this interview that I want to ask is about uh, an interview that uh, you did in 1999, so a long time ago. <laughs> this interview was published by the uh, then, uh, I think it was called Jerusalem Quarterly File. Nowadays, it's just called the Jerusalem Quarterly. And it was very much about one of your earliest books, Doves Over Jerusalem. And I, I was rereading this interview and I, I appreciated sort of the uh, uh, optimism of those years. And particularly, you were talking about the fact that in the end, Jerusalem had to be an open city. But things have kind of unfolded in a very different way, and Jerusalem more and more seems to be a closed city, something that you, you basically argue that was not going to be possible, but eventually turned out to be true. So I was wondering, you know, reflecting back uh, in the past 20, 30 years, how did you see Jerusalem changing? What did it change in Jerusalem? Also from your perspective as a political scientist. Uh, I will answer also on the changes that I went through in my own perspective regarding future Jerusalem or the permanent status agreement, what I recommend to, to have between Israelis and Palestinians. But the, the changes in the city, uh, the city is more tense. There is, it was always a very, very tense place uh, where all the Israeli domestic conflicts clash and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict happens. It's the, the scene of, of the stage over which the Israelis and the Palestinians clash, sometimes negotiate. And also the platform over which Israelis and Palestinians interact, encounter on their everyday life in, in a degree that does not exist anywhere else between Jordan River and the Mediterranean. So the very fact that we have about 40% Palestinian residents, permanent residents of the city, and 60% Jews, um, we, Israelis and Palestinians meet in the job market, in the city center, in, mall, in, in the malls, uh, almost elsewhere, except in the residential areas. And, uh, and this, of course, changes in times of tension or um, terrorist attacks or clashes between border police and the Palestinians. We, we leave the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, actually one of the changes recently since 
the, the this uh, 2000 the uh, the uh, 21st century century Jerusalem is not only the symbolic center of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it's also the actual center of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. In other words, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict moved from the hilltops of the occupied West Bank, let's say South Hebron Hills, Southwest Bank or Jordan River, it moved to, to, to the center of the metropolis, to the metropolis, to Jerusalem, and also to uh, Israel 48. Uh, we saw it last May. Um, so this is a huge difference that Jerusalem is not only the symbolic center and sporadically some clashes happens to evoke here and there in Haram al-Sharif or in a neighborhood like uh, Sheikh Jarrah, uh, and so on, but permanently all the major clashes are in Jerusalem, not in Gaza Strip. You can, you, we saw it last May. In last May, the major frontier was in Jerusalem, in Damascus Gate, and Sheikh Jarrah. Hamas joined or jumped on the train and, uh, and sent rockets from Gaza Strip, but the center of the conflict was Sheikh Jarrah and, and Temple Mount and, um, uh, and uh, Damascus Gate. So this is, a, this is a big change. Another change from the 90s, um, the optimism that you mentioned disappeared and, uh, and there is an atmosphere of a despair or end of, end of dreaming about a final status agreement, about a permanent peace between agreement, permanent status agreement between Israelis and Palestinians. So everyday life concerns took the place about, uh, took the place of the big dreams of the future relations between Israelis and Palestinians. Um, what, what brought it about among other things, among the failure of the peace process, the second intifada, is also the, the wall, the barrier that Israel built in Jerusalem that disconnect East Jerusalem from the West Bank and in other parts, from, it, it divides some parts of East Jerusalem from other parts of, of East Jerusalem, of Palestinian Jerusalem. So the Palestinians turned from moving towards the West Bank or maintaining context uh, and relationship attachment to the West Bank, more and more Palestinians now are attached to work or, or, or study in, uh, in West Jerusalem, in Jewish Israeli institutions, including the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, including David Yelin College for Education, for, for educators and, and, and so on. So the encounter on the job market in, in education system in everywhere almost, even malls, even small malls like the, the one in Talpiot uh, 
we, you can see on daily basis many Palestinians consume, work, interact with with Israelis. More Israelis learn to learn Arabic, to speak Arabic, in order to be able to communicate with their neighbors. So there, there is here a, a, a dramatic shift, and it got, it also happens because of, because of the decline of the Palestinian Authority of the central regime in Ramallah. So uh, it's not just that the central authority in Ramallah, the Palestinian Authority neglect J Jerusalem. This was the case also before 2000 or 2007, 2005, 2007, when the wall completed. But the decline uh, of the central authority and uh, uh, this uh, this is felt all over the West Bank and more so in East Jerusalem. Certainly, the city changed dramatically. But I think, uh, you know, going back to your work, uh, some of dramatic changes occurred even before. And I, and I want to just step back because you mentioned uh, this constant tension, uh, particularly in current Jerusalem. But when we look back, particularly at the beginning of the 20th century, tension was there indeed, but it was a different kind of tension. Like Vincent Lemire talked about this age of possibility, you also talk about a different kind of Jerusalem at the beginning of the 20th century, not just in Ottoman times, but also throughout the British uh, period. And so I want to bring you back there and think about this idea of lives in common. What actually does it mean, lives in common, thinking about Jerusalem uh, you know, in that particular period of time? Okay. I I will I will answer your question, and uh, but let me introduce two sentences about my my work or my perspective, how I look at at uh, this period from the late nineteenth century to 40, up to forty eight. Uh, history of the average citizen, history of everyday life, uh, which is a subject that many historians. Uh, deal with and write about in European history. This, this perspective was neglected by Middle East historians. They were fascinated by, by the wars and high politics and negotiations and, and so on. So they neglected the average citizen, the impact of, of the war on everyday life or what happens before a clash and after that and, and so on. So the local perspective was absent. It's now, uh, I, I hope that I contributed to fill this gap and then now are more and more studies um, doing the same and enrich our perspective. Actually, the, all these new studies changes the textbooks that, uh, that we used, the, the textbooks that I was was uh, educated along and brought up along. So uh, the, my, my point of view is everyday life uh, history. So everyday life in, in Jerusalem in the, in the late 19th century, early 20th century was, 
was very, very different from medieval, let's say, or early modern times. The rapid modernization happened in Jerusalem, openness to the, to the West. And first, and the most impressive change uh, that modernization brought about is the emergence of a local identity. The, the, uh, the Jerusalemites developed a local identity, which is much bigger, which was much bigger than the religious identity or the religious belonging. So uh, people felt attached to the place and I don't mean to the neighborhood where they lived or the, the city, which was, let's say the old city, the walled city, but they, but Jerusalem meant uh, what later became a center of Palestine or the mandatory Palestine. Um, so the local identity that developed, emerged um, in the late 19th century uh, was this, a new identity that brought together or created a common ground between Jews, Muslims, and Christians as they are Jerusalemites or Palestinians. Communication started newspaper titled Palestine, Philistine, uh, started to, to, to publish in the, the 1911, uh, 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 so we have to, to reevaluate the local identity, the local, what I call also local patriotism. The local patriotism, which was no less weaker than Arab identity and Ottoman identity. All the three were equal uh, um, and there was no competition. The, the people lived uh, along these three loyalties and attachment and belonging. The, the barriers between Jews and Muslims and Christians was much, much lower than in early modern times or in during the medievals or the early Ottoman period. Um, so if we look into um, primary sources of the uh, late 19th century, we can see that the, the, um, the Jew, Arab Jews was not only a title that Jews uh, used, but it was a title that the, the Muslims and the Christians, the Arabs, they uh, used to, 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 to give, to title, to describe their, their neighbors. And uh, also the concept that we have uh, in, of four quarters of Jerusalem, um, exclusive four quarters. This is a kind of, this is a wrong perception that in the 19th century, there were exclusive uh, quarters. Uh, Jews, many Jews lived in the Muslim quarter, even few in the Christian quarter, Muslims lived in uh, the Jewish quarter. So, the, the everyday life was mixed, highly mixed. Um, so I, I deal with this mix uh, in my book. I also ask what happened 
following the clashes, following the clashes of the, uh, let's say 1919, 1920, even 1929. Uh, and in my view, uh, everyday life almost reconstructed after almost completely reconstructed after those clashes in the places that I deal with, uh, Jerusalem and Jaffa, mostly, much less so in Hebron. Um, but the, the dramatic change was 48 more. Um, in, uh, if, if I measure what the, the what the, 1929 or even the Arab revolt of 1936, what changes it made on everyday life in Jerusalem and Jaffa, not much. It affected psychologically several, um, several people or groups, uh, the Zionist leadership, perhaps uh, um, Brit Shalom, Ehud, um, groups of the, the doves of the Hebrew University, the professors and, and so on. But on everyday life, almost everything resumed as, as it is uh, with more fears, but, but the interaction was the same. From 40, 1945 on, when the Second World War ended, the, there was a gradual escalation in, in, in Palestine between the, the Jews and the, the Brits and the Jews and Arabs. That during World War II years, it was the, 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 the area was, uh, Palestine was tranquil, was very, very calm. Everyone enjoyed the prosperity that, that the war brought. Um, when the Brits built Palestine as a center of supply for the big armies in, in Egypt and Iraq, so on. So it, the people lived in, in a kind of a bubble or in a kind of, of an interim period. This dramatically changed from 45 to 48. So the, the division of Jerusalem, the citizens' war, um, the uh, terrorist attack, mutual terrorist attacks. Uh, at that time, this created, this brought about the division in 48 and the trauma of 48, but it did not start in November 47. It's actually, it started in, in 45, immediately after the uh, Second World War, when the, the struggle uh, resumed. So, uh, but everyday life in, in, in the, or I would I would say it slightly different. There was a joint identity uh, emerging in, since the late 19th century of Jews and Arabs as local patriots, as Palestinians. The the two national movements, this the Jewish national movement, Zionism, and the Palestinian national movement, both, each of them, not both, each of them worked very hard to separate between the Jews and Arabs and build an exclusive national identity 
a national movement, exclusive one. So we have, and I know that there are few young scholars that ask if there was a chance, there was a possibility, it, it could be, it could be different. Uh, and there was there an Arab, let's say, Hud or Brit Shalom, an Arab, uh, Palestinian Arab Brit uh, Shalom uh, group. In my view, I think it was there. It could happen. It could happen, and uh, we we must we we must change our perspective from a deterministic perspective that watching our history or the. Um, the early 20th century history of Palestine as, um, as, as a direct line leading from one conflict to another, from one conflict to another, let's say 1909, 1911, 1919, 1920, 1921, 29, 36. This is the, the timeline that we were brought up with as a students or most of the textbooks on, on Israeli-Palestinian conflict. This is the, the perspective that, uh, that they use. So it was deterministic, actually deterministic. And each round was more violent than the other. There was no escape from start. You, you find out where year zero is, never mind where on this scale year zero is. And then like a Greek tragedy, you end up with 48, 67, then the first intifada, second intifada, who knows where we, we will end in the future. That's not, it's not serious history. Serious history is, let's see where, what were the options and what were the decisions or the forces that brought about the next stage. Was there an alternative or not? Why people choose this and not that. It was not that it was not written from start. Okay, it was not deterministic. Um, so this is the way that I suggest looking at the history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. At each stage, the two sides met a crossroad, and they decided. But there was a crossroad, and there were two options at least. Uh, and they decided to take one, one road and, and then they moved to another crossroad. That's the way to, to look on the, on the, on the history, as, as far as I see. I certainly would agree with you that the question of uh, agency in terms of making choices has been neglected for a long time. I mean, uh, now there are definitely more works looking into a what we may call liminal figures, uh, people that basically not necessarily recognized by history, but they were important in either making decisions or making suggestions, and then leaders took decisions. And so I think this is important. I mean, the, the question of everyday life uh, is not just dictated by uh, big events, but sometimes it's small events, uh, decisions taken at the last minute, uh, 
perhaps not the best uh, information available, and then history unfolds. I'm just thinking about a number of works that have been published recently, exactly about uh, uh, this, what uh, maybe in the past were considered even negligible uh, fact in history, but now they're very important because they tell us more about the people and how they made choices. I have one question about uh, the beginning of your work, and you already mentioned uh, the, the question of identity. In 2014, in your book, one of the most striking uh, chapters was basically chapter one about Arab Jews. Now, obviously, the term Arab Jews existed before, but it was not really widely used, and not many really were interested in uh, looking into who are Arab Jews. Nowadays, we have a number of scholars, and you mentioned some of them, uh, younger, uh, that are definitely working on this question of uh, Arab Jews and how Arab Jews fit uh, within sort of the Palestinian society, and then later on, obviously, through the Mandate era, uh, trying to figure out who they were in between the Palestinians, the, uh, the Zionists, and all of these new identities emerging. So I was wondering, you know, reflecting upon, uh, upon your work, who is an Arab Jew? Who are Arab Jews? And how this identity changed, particularly from the late 19th century throughout the 20th, obviously up until 1948. The term Arab Jews was used. I'm, I did not invent it. The term actually uh, was, was I, I found out that the term the first, as, as far as I know, um, was used, the first time was used by a traveler, a Jewish Ashkenazi traveler traveling here um, in, in Palestine um, in the late 19th century. And he wrote about Arab Jews. For him, these were uh, Jews, but they were Arabs in their culture and the language in everyday life. So this person was the first, as far as I know, to use Arab Jews. It was not Albert Memi in the, in the 70s regarding the Algiers in, uh, the Jews in, in Algiers. Um, the term Arab Jews was used in research regarding North African Jews, Iraqi Jews, but till I published my book, till my study, no one used it regarding Palestinian Jews. Oh, um, so uh, Arab Jew means, a, first of all, it, oh, I would like also to, to, to say it, it, it does not exclude the Ashkenazi Jews. So what we assume that Arab Jew is only what what we call today Oriental Jew, Mizrahi Jew, um, but not Ashkenazi Jew is wrong. Ashkenazi Jews in the late 19th century, early 20th century were also Arab Jews of a certain kind of Arab Jews. They, they spoke Arabic, they lived among Arabs, they, they were integrated in a way or another in the um, surrounding culture, language, norms, uh, everyday life, tempo, uh, and, 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 and so on. So Ashkenazi Jews were also Arab Jews. 
they, uh, they were accepted by the neighbors as Arabs, local patriots. Actually, once I had a very hot debate with the author A.B. Yoshua, he called me after my, after publishing my, my book, and he, he was unhappy that I use Arab Jew regarding his father. His, I, I, I wrote about, much about his father, uh, Abraham Yoshua, uh, so Yoshua uh, 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 it's um, uh, because his father uh, wrote extensively about everyday life. And I called him Arab Jew. And uh, he told me, no, 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 he was not an Arab Jew. So we agreed that uh, I, I will call him Palestinian Jew. So he was very happy, Palestinian Jew, that's it. My father would, would have been very, very happy to hear uh, this uh, title, Palestinian Jew. Um, so uh, actually, uh, local patriotism or Arab Jew uh, as, as a local identity was shared by, by, by Ashkenazis, by Mar Moroccans, immigrants from Morocco, immigrants from, Ashke from uh, Russia um, and, and uh, other places, um, Central Europe as well. So that came in the 18th century or, or mid 19th, 19th century. They became local residents of, of, of the city of, of Palestine. Um, so the identity, I argue, and here I, 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 I beg to differ with some textbooks like the, the textbooks, uh, the textbooks of, of Yoshua Porat on the emergence of the Palestinian national movement. So according to, the, to, to what I learned when I was a student, um, that the Palestinian national movement did not exist or there was no Palestinian identity before the, uh, uh, the second decade of the 20th century, be, before the end of the great Syria, uh, uh, greater Syria uh, regime, the defeat of Faisal in, in Damascus, only when the Ottoman identity collapsed and then the Arab regime in Damascus destroyed, only then as a default option, Palestinian identity emerged. I think that this has no base if we go back to everyday life and what people wrote and how they defined themselves. Uh, not the elite that was represented in, in Ottoman institutions, but, uh, but the people in the, in the, in the streets. Uh, local identity emerged as part of modernization by the local people at the end of the 19th century. Here, I also would like to, to, to mention another myth, mythos, uh, another myth. Uh, the, the Zionist myth is that only the Zionists developed Palestine. Modernization was introduced to Palestine exclusively by the Zionists, including to Jerusalem. You can see this theme developed by Joshua ben Arié. For, for, for instance, in his books, it has no, no historical ground. It is a wishful thinking or a, myth, a Zionist myth. 
Jerusalem was developed not only by Zionists, but also by Palestinians. Uh, Palestinians developed Jerusalem. They went out of, of the walls, not only Montefiore and the Jews and the Zionists, but also the Palestinians there. And they developed Jerusalem and we can see it along Jaffa Street and westwards and Yehuda Street and all, all the, what became in mandatory time city center. So uh, the, uh, the, the Palestinians developed Jerusalem and modernization created local identity, Palestinian identity. The, the Palestinian national movement and the, the administration that the British, uh, the Br British occupiers or the British mandatory regime built in Palestine was built on the local identity. The local identity presented the administration, not the administration created an identity. The administration enjoyed an identity that was developed by modernization, by religious uh, festivals like Nebi Musa and Nebi Rubin and so on. All this that I described in my, in, in my book, this was the base on which later the administration developed and, and rely on. The, nation, the two national movement worked very hard in order to create exclusive, not multi-ethnic identity, Palestinian identity, but exclusive identity. And actually, unfortunately, they succeeded in, in their project. And, and there was the, the, the civil war of 48 and, and the clash in, in 48, which, which created many tragedies in, in the city and beyond in Palestine. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Talking about modernity, you just remind me that I recently read a book about German Jerusalem by Thomas Parr. And uh, surprisingly, well, probably I should say unsurprisingly, well, he makes the claim that uh, modernity was obviously brought by, by the British and of course by Western European Jews, mostly the Germans and, and others, uh, which is always like a surprise because there have been now decades of writings proving that actually modernity, as you mentioned, was a mixed concept that was brought by different people and of course was also locally produced by Palestinians and supported by the Ottoman government. But I guess that's uh, a stereotype that uh, would be very hard to remove, um, mm -hmm. probably from many other writings in the future too. But that brings me to a question, because the, the book of uh, uh, Thomas Parr actually is about German Jews, mostly uh, in Jerusalem. And that reminds me that Jerusalem is a mixed city. And uh, now you talk about mixed cities in, in your book, obviously, because you talk about living commons in Jerusalem, Hebron and Jaffa. Now, Hebron was a mixed city, still a mixed city in different ways that was uh, the were obviously Jerusalem and Jaffa. But the concept of mixed cities became also very important, as you mentioned, at the very beginning during the summer, when uh, for the first time, Palestinian citizens of Israel uh, began to sort of uh, take action uh, in cities like uh, Ramallah, Haifa and others which are considered mixed cities. And, you know, there's always been this idea that, well, they are fully integrated and they will never sort of uh, act against their fellow citizens. But we, we saw that actually turned out to be different. And so I was wondering to what extent the concept of mixed cities is still valid and whether Jerusalem, in fact, is a mixed city and how is a mixed city? Okay, we have to change our perspectives um, on mixed Israeli mixed cities uh, and the Israeli Palestinians, actually. Uh, but regarding Jerusalem, Jerusalem is a binational city. It's not a, a Jewish, exclusive Jewish city. The Jews dominant, but 40% or about almost 40% of the Jerusalemites are non Jews, no neither Jews nor Israelis. They are also not citizens. They are resi permanent residents, but they are on the ground. They have their own identity. They are, they are different in their religion, in their culture and language, almost everything except the mix in, uh, in the job market, in, in the city centers, etc. So, the city is, is a binational city, actually a divided city. Uh, and the division is, is very felt. Act Jerusalem has the largest Arab minority in the in, under in the Israeli state. If we if we take the Israeli claim that uh, Jerusalem is united and Israel implied its uh, rule over its law over East Jerusalem. So by that Israel created the, the, the largest 
minority, Arab Palestinian minority in the state of Israel. It's, it, so th this is very, very different than Haifa or Acre or, or Lod or Ramli or Beersheba. What happens in, in, in the other Israeli cities is that the, the, there is both inter, greater integration of the, uh, of, of the Israeli Palestinians in the general society, but Israeli Palestinians move towards the, to, to live in Jewish neighborhoods, to work in Jewish occupation fields, Okay, the, the job market, more educated, those the, the expectations rises, and then the Jews reject them in different ways. Let's say even legally by the Israel, the basic law, Israel is a nation state of, of the Jewish people, for instance. So the Jewish majority goes back to its ethnic rules and ethnic roots much more than ever before as a reaction to the inter growing interaction of the Israeli-Palestinians. So here we have the two uh, pull and push the movements at the same time. This create conflicts. This create rejection, expectations, expectations rejected, there is a conflict. So the Israeli-Palestinians, the young generation of, this, of the Israeli-Palestinians identify themselves not as Arab Israelis, but Israeli-Palestinians. And they demand equality, but the majority does not want to give them equality. So this, this brings them closer to the Jerusalemites and the Palestinians in the West Bank. And actually, as the, Israel, the state of Israel expands, into the West Bank and create one regime from Jordan to the Mediterranean. Actually, there is one regime and the Palestinian Authority is subcontractor of, of the Israeli state, actually. So we, we live in, it's not a one state, but it's one regime, which the 50% uh, of the Jews rule over are superior economically in security by force, um, state uh, power over the other 50%, this bring closer the Israeli-Palestinians to the Palestinians of the West Bank. Um, so we, we face a different stage in the conflict. We, it's an ethnic conflict under one regime. This is a very different conflict than it was in the 20th century or the late 20th, 20th century. And therefore, the solutions and the way out of the conflict should be very different. Before we talk about politics, I want to bring you back to the question of everyday life. Uh, I'm an historian. I'm fascinated with uh, the aspects of everyday life. And I was wondering if you can give us a sense of actually maybe some examples of everyday life in Jerusalem, particularly in the late uh, 19th century, obviously late Ottoman era, and maybe also throughout uh, the British uh, mandate, so through the 1920s and 30s. You mentioned, I think this is very important, the history of the city was marked by conflicts. And again, the traditional dates, 1920, and then 1921, 1929, the, the revolt, 36, 39. 
but there are all of these gaps in the middle. And, uh, and that's where we, we, and as I feel even I as historians, fail to look into and actually fill those gaps and re realizing that there are people living the daily life. And uh, so rather than focusing on those dates or that, that particular flare up of, of tension, you know, looking at, uh, you know, the period of, uh, let's say, peaceful coexistence. Okay, I will give you a few examples. Um, for instance, religious festivals. Uh, Jews participated in Nebi Musa. They did not go out to the Nebi Musa festival, but they participated in the welcome of, uh, of the, those who celebrate Nebi Musa when they came on their way down to Nebi Musa. They came first to Jerusalem and, they, and their way back from Nebi Musa after a week, the uh, Jews participated in welcoming back to the city. Um, it, it was the official ceremony with the chief rabbis, with the administrators, the mayor, the British um, uh, ruler, administrator, and the high commissioner. Uh, and Jews went out and cheered and, and, and were fascinated um, seeing that this, uh, the, 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 this, the people coming and celebrate. And some of them, like the father of A.B. Oshua, they, he writes that he felt that that those who come from Hebron this, uh, to, to celebrate in Nebi Musa and enter Jerusalem, they like the Jewish pilgrimage during the, the temple, second temple period. So in his imagination, he closed the gap of that the, there was no difference in his imagination between Jews and Muslims. They were Jewish pilgrims coming to Haram Sharif, which is the Jewish temple. Okay, so there was no division. Uh, um, and, and this happened also after 1919. Um, Jews participated in, in, in the, the, this, um, or for instance, in Sheikh Jarrah, um, Saint Simon, Simon the Pious. Um, the, Saint Simon was uh, Shimon Tzadik in Hebrew, uh, was a local um, holy person or local holy place for everyone nearby, Jews and Arabs. That the same was Nebi Samuel to, to the north of the city. It was a, a local saint that all the local people all around, Jews, Arabs, used to pray to and believed in, in, this, in the, his, his miracles and celebrated the, 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 the annual festival of, of Shimon HaTzadik. Today, it is exclusive Jewish. The Palestinians face um, evacuation from houses next by Shimon HaTzadik in Sheikh Jarrah. Um, it, it, this shows a, a huge difference or in everyday life, for instance, the Palestinian Yiddish, okay, the, the local dialect of Yiddish, um, it, it uh, includes at least about 400 words in Arabic. And the local Arabic includes few words 
from Yiddish, because the interaction the, on a daily life inter, in, uh, base, interaction created a common language um, and, uh, and, and so on. So it was people, people used to, to study few elite boys, uh, elite family boys from Palestinian Arabs studied in a Jewish school. They sat together, Jews and Arabs, in, in coffee shops and in the bath, in the, in the bazaar, in the, um, uh, in the took bath together, make business together, friendship. There were mixed marriage. Actually, it was not, it was not legal, but it was well known. I brought in my book names. I decided to include only names and I have not few. It was not marginal, actually. It was not, it was not, let's say, um, uh, common, uh, but well-known and accepted uh, mixed marriage between Jews and, and uh, Jewish girls and mostly Jewish girls and, uh, and, uh, and Arabs. Um, so mixed marriage was there. Uh, Jews established even, I, I, I did not have a chance to include it in my book, but I, I saw a photo uh, of this uh, team, a football yeshiva students uh, in the early, I think 1911 or 13, uh, but not, not later of 1913, uh, there was a football team of yeshiva students in Jerusalem. Now, ultra-Orthodox college of yeshiva establish a football team that played against the Arab college and teams coming from Beirut outside the, the Jaffa gate, somewhere between uh, Baba Zahra uh, area, uh, where today it's uh, Musarara and Mea uh, Shearim. And it was only two years after the football, soccer, was introduced into Palestine to the to the uh, Anglican the English school the the college. Uh, so the, the Ashkenazi Jews very very fastly endorsed the, the, the football um, in yeshiva. Now today you don't have one single yeshiva that has a football team uh, official. Not not. Not as a hobby, you know, on Friday afternoon, but official with, you know, the shorts, the the um, uh, the team clothes, and and so on. So the, 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 this the, this is not only modernization. This is culture. It's everyday life culture and encounter. Um, people met in in, in cinema Zion, um, for instance. Um, unions used to call for meeting in Cinema Zion. And the, the announcement on the meeting was published in three languages, Hebrew, Arabic, and English. Uh, and it was very, very common. 
concerts in, in YMCA, West Jerusalem, was shared by, by the elite members of all the three. Um, in King David, the elite met in the, the lobby, and the, they danced together. Few Jews were invited by Katie Antonius to her parties, which was, it was not only a party, it was a salon. 18th, 19th century style salon. Uh, uh, there were two Jews that permanent inviters um, to, to, to this salon. So it was, it was very, very, very mixed. On the top of the top of the national movement, there was a, a serious division be between the two. But, uh, but on everyday life, the, the city was highly mixed. I always tell my students when talking about uh, the marriages and you know mixed relations, particularly at sort of a let's say daily life uh, kind of level, that my grandfather uh, was a fascist. You know, I'm Italian, and he volunteered uh, with a fascist uh, to go to Spain, and my grandmother was uh, uh, in the resistance as a communist fighter. I don't know how that happened, but did it happen? And so uh, to me that as much as a personal example, but I like to use it to say, look, you know, sometimes you have to go beyond this concept of identities and restrictions that we impose on others, but people do meet people, they have their lives. And sometimes they have to go, uh, you know, come across a lot of obstacles and difficulties, but it, it's possible unless yeah. obviously authorities put uh, stricter rules. And of course, you know, like in Nazi Germany, obviously, then it becomes like much more complicated to have mixed relations. I want to bring you to the contemporary uh, sort of politics of Jerusalem. And I was recently reading uh, um, an article that you published in, uh, the, uh, in the Italian sort of think tank Instituto Affari Internazionali or Institute for uh, International Affairs. And the article, uh, it's called Back from the Brink, an Israeli-Palestinian Proposals for uh, Jerusalem. Now, you wrote this article right in the middle of uh, past uh, summer events, when, uh, uh, again, violence escalated in Jerusalem, particularly in relation to the question of Sheikh Jarrah that you mentioned earlier. And you brought back this idea, uh, sort of a plan, uh, the Geneva plan that emerged in the early 2000s during the Second Intifada, but also the concept of open Jerusalem. And so I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit about uh, what was the Geneva plan, whether if it's still a possibility, but more importantly, what does it mean open Jerusalem? Is it a possibility for the future? Okay, I, I made a U-turn in my approach to future Jerusalem, okay? So start with my initial uh, standpoint was that we should build a border between uh, Al-Quds and Yerushalayim, between Palestinian and Israeli Jerusalem. Hard border. Um, actually, I was among the few that argued in favor of dividing Jerusalem in the late, late 1990s, actually before Camp David. And um, I had the privilege some, some people think that I, they, they blame me, but I think it is the privilege 
to introduce and argue to the decision makers and argue publicly for the need to divide Jerusalem between Israel and Palestine based on 67 borders. Uh, Geneva, initiate, Geneva Initiative in 2003 uh, is the follow-up project of what started in Camp David 2000. So it's a very detailed plan, how to divide Jerusalem, how it will look like, um, and the per how a permanent status agreement also outside Jerusalem um, looks like, and, and it is possible. Now, since 2003, much happened on the ground. And this brought me to, to check uh, whether the solution that we found in 2003 is still available. It is possible to implement on the ground. And uh, um, we still work, uh, it is a, uh, we, we start, I say we, few activists in, in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem and Ramallah uh, that we were involved in track two negotiations since 94, um, in professional assistance to the, to the talks in Camp David and in Geneva. Um, a team of us continue to work on assuming that, okay, we need to see whether the, the vision is feasible and desirable today. Now, if, you, if we go and travel in Jerusalem, we see that it is in, in most areas, it is impossible to build a hard border line between Jewish and Arab neighborhoods. And as time passes, more Jewish new neighborhoods build close to the Palestinian neighborhoods. And therefore, the question is whether the two state solution or two capitals is still alive. In my view, it is still possible, but it is impossible to divide physically as we once thought Jerusalem. We need to think differently. Now, it means open Jerusalem. How to reconcile, how to compromise open city with security needs and fears, imagine threats and real threats. This is the big challenge. The economically or the econo uh, arrangements, let's say, regarding currency, um, trade, customs, and so on, all these fields, we have convincing options. Not one option, there are few options. The, ma the major thing is security. My assumption is we did not complete the work, which there are issues that need to complete, but we have at least introduced the initial step in this article, I introduced the first step towards uh, open Jerusalem, how it can be implemented. Uh, we need to work more regarding security, but I'm very optimistic based on new technologies. So we could see in COVID-19, 
how new technology can help us to follow people where to identify where a person is. Uh, we have biometric technologies now in border crossing. We, we use advanced technology in order to make our life easier. The way that the Israeli security institution or, or people who are uh, graduates of or retired from the security establishment, they think in terms of the 1990s, of the old days. We need to introduce new security thinking, and it is possible. Uh, so th this is this is the challenge. Actually, in Camp David, also in Geneva negotiation, also in Annapolis talks, the Palestinians wanted open city. The Israelis rejected the open city. The tragedy is that those who negotiate over Jerusalem are non-Jerusalemites. They are ex-generals or generals or politicians that they do not live in the city. They don't know how a city, not Jerusalem, but any city functions. What, how, how far openness or dead end can build or destroy a city? So that, that's a tragedy that, that they are very happy uh, or let's say not enough unhappy to, to kill Jerusalem, to turn Jerusalem to a dead end in, in order to achieve maximum security. And I mean security in the terms of the 90s, uh, in a way that it will kill both Al-Quds and, and Yerushalayim. That's not the way to build, to build our future. So we, we have to change our perspective to rely more on new technologies and to create a, a system that will keep Jerusalem maximum as far as we can open. And then we, we will enjoy a, a, a different Jerusalem. So imagine, that we will have in Jerusalem 9 million tourists per, per year, that 9 million is the number, let's say, average number without COVID-19 that visit Cairo pyramids, okay? 9 million tourists wanting to enter the Jaffa gate or enter the old city through Damascus gate plus local Israelis, Jews, and, and Arabs, it is impossible to build there a visa checkpoint or a security checkpoint. It is impossible. So we need to think very differently how, uh, how we, uh, we supervise the, the, such a great number of, uh, of tourists, uh, of visitors, how we don't, do not destroy the old city with its bazaar and the, the people who live in the Muslim and the Jewish and the Christian uh, Armenian quarters, etc. We keep it alive, not, not a, a, as a museum, as an empty place. So uh, it, it's, this is, this is the, ch the challenge. And therefore negotiations cannot be 
managed without the local perspective and the local interest. It, it is irresponsible to leave it only to those who live in, to leave the negotiations and the future of Jerusalem in the hands of those who live in Tel Aviv. I think what you just said about the fact that any agreement should be left with uh, Jerusalemites instead of uh, people outside from Jerusalem uh, should be really at the very top of any future uh, either plan, but also uh, idea about uh, how to proceed to the, you know, moving for the next step forward. Uh, and I think the events of the summer really highlighted that, that Jerusalemites, particularly Palestinian Jerusalemites, are really taking things in their own hands. And they, they show that they're tired of uh, certainly being segregated by the Israeli on one side, but also neglected by, uh, by the fellow Palestinians, particularly the Palestinian Authority in Ramallah. And, and it was like, in a sense, refreshing also to see younger uh, you know, Palestinians sort of taking things in their own hands and say, this is who we are and this is what we want, instead of leaving you know, their representation to other people who have virtually no knowledge of that place for various reasons. As we reach the end of the interview, I want to ask one last question. Our conversation took one direction, but I was wondering if there's anything that I didn't ask that you want to talk about. No, I think that you cover uh, the past and the present and to some extent also the future uh, of, of the city. Uh, one thing that I, I, I think it's very important for anyone who is not, who is not all close in research only, but looks outside the study, his, his or her study, is not being afraid to change views and not being afraid to, ra to raise voice if, or debate with axiomas that everyone accepts and, and uh, there is no debate about, about it. So it's, uh, it, and very few historians dare to, 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 to step into politics or, the, or plan or suggest anything about, about the future. I think that more historians should be involved in what is, uh, what is called the negotiations or the peace process. Uh, don't leave it only to political scientists and international relation experts. We need more humanity, scholars, historians, philosophers, uh, religious people that, that inspire the, the politicians. The, the view of the politicians is, a they, they have a very short sight, very, very short sight. They, are, they, they act under pressure of their constituencies and to immediate needs and interests. Historians look far beyond the immediate. And uh, I do think that historians and, and people of literature, of humanities can add much to, to negotiations. This was Professor Menachem Klein, professor in the Department of Political Studies at Barilan University, but also author of a, an amazing book, Lives in Common, 
Arabs and Jews in Jerusalem, Jaffa, and Hebron. Professor Klein, thank you so much. Thank you, Roberto. And chapeau for the uh, Jerusalem Unplugged. Great program. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks, and I'll see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.